Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. You know, I'm a firm believer in always looking ahead, casting about for opportunity and new adventures. I think that as multi-sport athletes, I'm probably not unique in having that perspective. Generally, triathletes come from a background of one sport and are lured by the challenge of attempting to layer on the others. When I took the step of becoming a coach, I did so with that same clear-eyed sense of setting out on a new phase of my own personal journey in this arena. And over the past couple of years, I could say that it has been just one more in a series of very satisfying and ultimately vindicating decisions. Well, now I'm excited to say that another door has been open for me, and I'm happily taking the opportunity to walk through it. A longtime friend of this podcast, Lance Watson, is one of the few master coaches for Ironman and has a long and successful track record in the sport coaching. First with Olympic gold medalist Simon Whitfield, and then with several Kona podium finishers, as well as elite triathletes all over the world. Well, Lance agreed several months ago to mentor me in my own growth as a coach, and he did so very graciously, just in an informal fashion. And a couple of months ago, he went so far to offer me a position with his company, Life Sport Coaching. So I am really happy to report that TriDoc Coaching is now going to be TriDoc Coaching at Life Sport. And I am really excited for what this means for me as a coach and for the opportunities it offers to all of my athletes and for anyone who were to consider joining me. If you're interested in learning more about me or about LifeSport, be sure to go to my website at tridoccoaching.com or to the lifesportcoaching.com site where you can learn about me and about the company. You can also send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com and I'd be happy to chat with you more. As I mentioned on the last episode, I've started a Patreon program for listeners who enjoy the podcast and would like to get more out of it in return for providing some uh, some support. Uh, The page is live at patreon.com forward slash tridocpodcast, and there are multiple levels of support, each with its own tier of thank you, from call-outs on the show to bonus episodes and even live Q&A sessions. Tridoc interns choose to support at $3 a month, Tridoc residents support the show at just a slightly higher rate of $5 a month, and Tridoc fellows really show their loves for the podcast by supporting the show to the tune of $10 per month. Whatever you might be able to do, all of my Patreon subscribers will have my undying gratitude, and I hope that you, if you enjoy this podcast and find it of value to you, that you'll consider becoming a supporter at whatever level makes sense. On the show today, Brody Sharp is a Melbourne, Australia-based physiotherapist who produces the Run Smarter podcast. On that show, Brody discusses a lot of great information related to running strategy geared towards staying injury-free and emphasizing longevity in the sport. Well, he joins me today to talk about running injuries and rehabilitation, and especially about the need, or lack thereof, for orthotics. First, though, as always, I have a medical question to answer. The clocks went back this past weekend in the Northern Hemisphere, and the days are becoming shorter, and that means a lot less hours of daylight for most over the next few months. Aside from having an impact on our mental health, this lack of sunshine can also impact our physical health because of a decrease in vitamin D production. The question then becomes, though, does this matter? Do you need to supplement with vitamin D? Well, I look at the evidence on this issue, especially as it pertains to athletes, and that's coming up right now.
Vitamin D, the sunshine vitamin, was for many years thought to play an important role in maintaining bone health. But in recent decades, its wide-ranging influences on other organ systems have come to be known as well. Back in the 1800s and early 1900s, the bone disease rickets was a common problem among children in northern industrialized cities. A combination of working long hours in factories and living in cities that already didn't get a lot of sunshine during long parts of the year was compounded by the continual sun-blocking haze from coal-fired plants. Children developed soft, easily bowed bones and would have the characteristic bowed legs that were seen commonly with the disease that would come to be known as rickets. Well, despite being recognized as a clinical entity as far back as Roman times, it wasn't until the 1700s that researchers first made the connection between bone health and sunlight exposure, and not until the early 20th century that vitamin D was discovered and its metabolism teased out. When the vitamins started being added to milk products, rickets was finally eradicated amongst children in the United States, but that was only by the mid-1940s. Vitamin D is made in the skin under conditions of sunlight exposure. Alternatively, the vitamin can be obtained through dietary sources, though few unfortified foods contain the vitamin in anything but really small amounts. Fatty fishes such as tuna or cod, eggs, and some kinds of mushrooms are some examples of foods that contain the vitamin in varying amounts, while in the United States, dairy products and cereals tend to be fortified sources. Supplements are also a common source of the vitamin, though whether or not they are required is a subject of ongoing debate and discussion, and something that I'm going to get to later on in this segment. It's important to note that vitamin D, whether synthesized in the skin or obtained through the diet, is actually inactive until it undergoes metabolism in both the kidney and the liver to its active form, where it then exhibits its actions on target organs. Once activated, vitamin D is best known, as previously mentioned, for its effects on bone health. Essentially, the presence of vitamin D is critical for the absorption from the intestines and integration into the bones of the mineral calcium. Without the vitamin, bone tends to get resorbed in what is a normal metabolic process, but it's not then replaced. And so over time, bones become weaker and more susceptible to becoming deformed under normal stresses from just load. Now, aside from bone health, vitamin D has been found to exert influence on many other organ systems, and most of these have been fleshed out just in the last couple of decades or so. There are effects on all of cardiovascular muscle, immune cells, and neurologic cells, but the extent of those effects and the importance of deficiency of vitamin D remains unclear, as only the significant effects on the skeleton really manifest as a true disease state when vitamin D is lacking. Indeed, very few studies to this point have really shown any benefits when supplements of vitamin D have been used in an attempt to alter disease with any of the other systems. So only the skeleton shows true disease manifestations when vitamin D is absent, and only the skeletal disease rickets is cured when vitamin D is restored. Now, part of the problem may be related to the misunderstanding of what constitutes a true vitamin D deficiency. In the absence of bone disease, excuse me, in the absence of bone disease, vitamin D deficiency has generally been taken to mean when blood levels are measured to be below a pre-specified cutoff level. Now there are two problems with this definition. 
The first is that the cutoff level tends to be pretty arbitrary and is not really well understood to be an absolute. In fact, the cutoff level for vitamin D varies depending on what country's health agency you refer to. And second, vitamin D levels are measured as the total amount of vitamin D in the blood. But most vitamin D is bound to circulating protein, and a small amount is free. But it's that free amount that actually exerts the effects of the vitamin. The protein-bound fraction is inert. Now, this is particularly important because the amount of vitamin D binding protein varies really widely between people determined principally by skin color, with people who have darker colored skin having lower amounts of the protein. So while darker colored skin folks have lower levels of total vitamin D, they don't exhibit any manifestations of actual vitamin D deficiency because the amount of free vitamin D tends to be about the same as in people who have higher amounts of total vitamin D because they have more of the vitamin D binding protein. Now, all of this uncertainty hasn't stopped a burgeoning supplement industry from pro promoting vitamin D as a panacea, given its wide-ranging effects, and in spite of the fact that there really isn't a whole lot of evidence supporting its use. And as always, athletes haven't been immune to this propaganda. And in the past decade or so, vitamin D supplementation has been quite in vogue amongst both coaches and athletes. The question, though, remains as to whether or not vitamin D supplementation is either necessary or particularly beneficial. Well, a recent meta-analysis, and you'll recall from previous episodes of this podcast, a meta-analysis is when you take a whole bunch of prospective studies done on people giving them vitamin D for various reasons to look at all kinds of different disease states. You take all of those studies, you pool the data together, and then you reanalyze the pooled data. That is a meta-analysis. So a recent meta-analysis compiled all of the prospective evidence done on vitamin D use in athletes, and what they found was not particularly remarkable. With respect to the effects on muscles, well, vitamin D has been shown to have some positive impact on muscle remodeling and repair after breakdown from high-intensity efforts. So you go out, you do a really high-intensity bike ride, let's say, and we know that afterwards you're, a little, you're sore. And the reason you're sore is because you've appropriately had some breakdown of muscle. Well, in the lab, we can see that vitamin D has some impact on improving muscle remodeling and repair. But all of these results are in lab animals or in vitro in actual tissue samples. And it's unclear if the same effects are true in humans or if these effects even translate to improved performance at all because none of those kinds of studies have been done. Furthermore, research on the ergogenic effects of vitamin D, in other words, the uh, ability of vitamin D to actually improve muscle strength, are inconsistent. But at present, it seems that vitamin D doesn't play a role in the contractile properties and force-producing capacity of muscle in athletes. Now there's, some interest, now, there's some interesting research to show that low levels of vitamin D are associated with a higher likelihood of catching respiratory viruses. However, few studies have really been done to determine if vitamin D supplementation confers any protection in this regard. And studies in humans on a myriad of other infectious problems, ranging from bacterial sepsis to even COVID-19, have failed to show any true benefit from adding vitamin D alone. And this may simply be a situation where too little vitamin D becomes a problem, but more than the normal amount doesn't really help. Now, as I mentioned earlier, vitamin D also has effects on the heart. 
But to date, the relationship between the vitamin and cardiac function remains pretty controversial. It's not entirely clear what the relationship is. Despite the growing body of evidence demonstrating a link between vitamin D deficiency, deficiency and cardiovascular risk factors, there's actually very few studies that have examined the association between vitamin D status and cardiac structure and function in healthy athletes. So the jury's still out as to whether or not there's any association between taking vitamin D and any improvement in cardiac health, especially among athletes. Now, as mentioned earlier, bone health is the one way in which vitamin D deficiency manifests as actual disease, and specifically, that tends to be with rickets. But unfortunately, all of the research to date does not show any benefit on any of osteoporosis in postmenopausal women, or stress fracture prevention, or injury prevention in athletes with vitamin D supplementation. So given all of the evidence, the question becomes, is supplementation of vitamin D really necessary? Well, for the vast majority of people, clearly the answer is no. There's no obvious health benefits from supplementing, and there is a small risk, and it's a real risk, of toxicity if you take too much. However, with that said, I don't want to minimize the importance of vitamin D deficiency. That is real and does exist, especially for people living in certain areas of the world. Interestingly, this entity has been seen increasingly, even in temperate climates, with the increased use of very high SPF sunscreens that can block the formation of vitamin D in the skin, even when a person gets adequate sun exposure. So the real question is not whether or not athletes should be supplementing with vitamin D, because the answer there, at least for the vast majority, seems to be no, but rather, who should be tested to see if they're deficient? Fortunately, this answer, this question rather, is a little bit easier to answer. The first question in order to get to this answer as to who should be tested is to consider as an athlete whether or not you have limited sun exposure to your arms and legs at minimum for about 20 minutes a day or so, or do you live at latitudes less than 30 degrees south or greater than 60 degrees north? And this would include places like Alaska or in the southern ranges of Australia, like Sydney, Melbourne, or in Auckland, New Zealand, or South Africa. If you live in these places, it may be worth considering getting a vitamin D level tested, but you should remember that even if you live in those places, as long as you are eating a regular diet that is fortified with vitamin D, it's probably still not that necessary. Still, if you are thinking about getting tested for vitamin D, you do need to remember to distinguish between the free and total amounts of the vitamin. The free amount is preferred and much more important than the total amount. If the free amount is low, then supplementation might be indicated, and it's usually done anywhere from 2,000 to 4,000 international units a day. But these are the only people who should really be taking supplements, those who have low levels of the free vitamin D. The vast majority of people, even those who live in the, these latitudes, and even those who aren't getting a huge amount of sun, are still going to have normal vitamin D levels because of the wide variety of fortified foods in our diet, and so supplementation is not really going to be needed, but again, for a few, it may be. Still, the take-home point from all of this remains that for athletes and coaches, vitamin D supplementation is yet one more dietary consideration that unless really indicated because of vitamin deficiency, is not really necessary, and for the most part, without benefit. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the podcast? Well, email it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com.
My guest today is Brody Sharp. Brody is a physiotherapist from Melbourne, Australia, where he has his own online physiotherapy clinic dedicated to treating runners. He's also the host of the Run Smarter podcast and is on a mission to bring clarity and control back to every injured runner. But for now, he's taken some time to join me here on the TriDoc podcast. Welcome, Brody. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited. Yeah, me too. It's really great to have you on. I'm always keen to have people from down under uh, joining me. Uh, Brody, in your day-to-day practice as a physiotherapist, specifically as you manage with runners, what kind of injuries do you tend to see most frequently? Uh, Yeah, good question. So the the physiotherapy work that I do is 100% online. And so I, I treat runners from all around the world who uh, like my stuff, like the information I give to people, and then they come with any questions. And if we need to do any physiotherapy work, that's um, what the the sort of route that we venture into. But because it is online, a lot of runners that I do see have already tried face to face physios. They've gone to see like two physical therapists, one Cairo. They've seen their GP. They've um, had a consult with their surgeon or had injections or shockwave and they've tried a lot of things before they get to me and before they um, consider online physiotherapy. And so with that said, most people that I do see are kind of the chronic nature of injuries and um, there's two one, two injuries that really are highlighted and that would be um, proximal hamstring tendinopathy and plantar fasciitis. And both of those tend to stick around for a very, very long time if they're mismanaged in the early days. And um, then a lot of options are not effective. And so they're generally the ones that filter into my online clinic. Yeah. And when you talk about chronic injuries, uh, those are definitely, aside from joint things like knees, uh, I mean, especially proximal uh, hamstring tendinopathy, that one, once it gets going, runners are notorious for ignoring it and it just gets worse and worse and then it becomes a real problem. Uh, Have you had much success in dealing with that uh, in terms of even online, getting people to get over it in a reasonable time frame and get back to running? Uh, Definitely. Yeah. I I love the results that I do get. It is tough because you are working with a different demographic of chronic pain as well. You have to address that side of things. And if someone like, especially with uh, these two injuries, they tend to affect your everyday life as well. It's not just running and it's not just um, cycling. It's uh, they're walking, they're working. If they have to stand and work, it's uh, sitting, especially with the hamstring sort of stuff. Um, So it starts to affect their everyday life, which really starts to impact their mental health. And what I'm finding really challenging is the the type of clients that do have the the mental health side of things as well. They're very frustrated, they're angry, they're anxious. Um, all those associated mental impacts um, can be very hard to treat, but I use a few different strategies in order to help with the, the treatment effectiveness. And yeah, I'm really happy with the results I'm getting. Well, give me an example of one of the things that you will use to try and help athletes with that. Because I know for myself as a coach, uh, I deal with athletes who have injuries and they become, you know, understandably very frustrated when things don't get back to normal quickly and they have to then deal with a prolonged absence from the thing that they love. And with these kinds of injuries that you mentioned, certainly with runners, I mean, these can be there, especially plantar fasciitis, it can linger for months. So give me an example of one of the strategies you can use to try and help athletes 
deal with the mental anguish and the mental sort of problems to get over these injuries. Yeah, absolutely. And months, but yeah, years as well. I've seen people with two, three years. I've interviewed someone on my podcast who had 10 years of proximal hamstring tendinopathy and um, yeah, it gets really, really nasty. So what I do encourage a lot of my clients to do is first of all, start documenting their symptoms, start documenting with a lot of accuracy because it's very hard to pinpoint any particular flare-ups that do happen or any reasons why a flare-up might happen. And so I like people day by day just documenting what their morning stiffness or morning pain is like out of 10, how long that stiffness lasts for. Is it 15 minutes? Is it 30 minutes? Um, what is it like standing throughout the day? What is it like at night? What is it like uh, before a run or during your run or after your run? And just constantly documenting um, to find a pattern into what is causing a flare-up or what is causing um, it to consistently be irritated and then working our way back from there. And it could be a really nice way of someone identifying um, certain behaviors that they're doing, certain patterns that they're doing that might be unhelpful for their recovery. And even just a couple of weeks ago, I had a client document her map and she can't really find anything consistent. But once we did it uh, day by day, she actually recognized that on the days she was emotionally stressed or she was more anxious than other days, that's when her flare-up would occur. And so it wasn't necessarily a physical trigger or something mechanical. It was actually um, the brain state and her mental state, which was causing flare-ups. And so that's when we have to um, say, look, you're ticking all the boxes physically, you're ticking everything well, um, but we need to start addressing the mental side of things. So starting to um, practice the art of, say, um, appreciation for what she does have rather than what she doesn't have or practicing gratitude, being grateful for certain things without throughout the day, being um, just having reassurance that her tendons are strong, that you will get better, like these sort of reassurance statements because um, her in particular had been dealt with, been mismanaged her injury um, in the early days very, very poorly and she was told a whole bunch of misconceptions early in the day which she believed like her surgeon just gave her really poor advice um, which we had to unpack in the early days of her management which takes me to another thing which would answer your question as well. What do we do for um, the mental side of things? Addressing any misconceptions or beliefs that you might have about your injury because if it's plantar fasciitis or high hamstring tendinopathy or some chronic nature, people tend to think that they're going to have this for the rest of their life. They think that their tendons are, uh, let's just say, degenerated or deconditioned and it's never going to return back to where they were. Uh, they have these certain beliefs and addressing these beliefs can be a big step forward into them um, helping calm down their anxiety, help, help calm down their mental state, and then we can work on the physical side of things, which would entail like um, daily modifications and strengthening exercises, rehab, that kind of thing. Gosh, I really like all of that because it's, uh, it really resonates with the concept of giving people back control because uh, so much of, uh, you know, the psychology of injury is this learned helplessness. And it sounds like what you're doing is really allowing athletes to understand that they're not helpless, that they have an ability to control what's going on and uh, giving them that control can play a really big role in helping the psychology of the injury. I really, really like that approach yeah, absolutely and it's like the when you when you're sort of um delving into how 
what does online do? What can you do online? And it helps me train to come up with management strategies that helps empower the person because I can't physically put my hands on them and I can't physically do these passive treatments. It is a a way of me giving them methods, giving them their own strategies, educating them so that they can deal with it themselves, which in a way is um, a strategy to help empower them that they're capable of doing it themselves. That's great. Uh, what kinds of mistakes uh, do you commonly see that runners make that either get them into trouble or cause them problems in prolonging their injuries? Um, it, for someone who is already injured or for someone who is well, either way, injured? Either way. I mean, I know myself as a coach, I see mm-hmm. sort of common things that come up in the in the way athletes behave that lead them into injury i'm just wondering as a physiotherapist do you see similar kinds of patterns that people do that get them injured and then are there other types of things that people can do that uh, cause them not to recover in other words to prolong their injuries yeah so um the overarching like premise or the the main reason why these athletes do get injured is an error in training. It's doing too much too soon. It's having this spike in load or a rapid change in something within their training. And it might not be load. It might be a rapid change in the style of shoe that you have, or it might be changing your bike setup. It might be a rapid change in terrain. All of a sudden you're doing hills when you're usually consistently on the flats. Um, Just any sort of rapid acute change that exceeds the body's capacity to adapt is the surefire way to get injured and it is the majority the vast majority of why athletes do get injured um what keeps them from injury or or actually what prolongs an injury is i guess in the initial phases doing um something that's not helpful or getting having these misconceptions or having uh in these initial stages doing something wrong like they think stretching might help proximal hamstring tendinopathy is a good one they think stretching helps but um they might go into facebook groups or um get poor advice and say you just need to keep stretching because it feels tight it feels sore and when you stretch that area it you kind of get this temporary relief and it feels like you're targeting that area because it feels sore to stretch so it must be good but it's actually irritating um the tendon and is a surefire way for it not to recover and maybe perhaps not identifying those training errors to start with and yeah just starting off on the wrong foot so that's what would lead a one week injury into a six week injury and then it just tails on from there now wait i have to go back to something you said and and posit that facebook isn't really the best place to go and get (laughs) advice on managing injuries because that's going to take a lot of people by surprise i think i've actually stopped i I was trying to be really active on facebook groups and uh provide a lot of education to people and trying to start things out but i've actually pulled away from that because there's so much consistent posts that i see and the, the advice that i see is actually making my blood boil a little bit and it's not good for my mental state and yeah. so um i've actually yeah pulled back and um started other methods of helping people i hear you i hear you loud and clear um you and i have talked a little bit uh about orthotics or orthopedic inserts as i think they're known uh on your side of the ocean uh i am interested in uh having that conversation here for my 
my listeners because I've been asked several times about the value of these things. Uh, coming uh, to it from your perspective as a physiotherapist who manages a lot of runner injuries, especially plantar fasciitis, uh, where do you come down on the usefulness or utility of uh, orthotics? Yeah, and it's a it's a topic that we can probably unpack for an hour if we really want to deep dive into it. And like I try my best to have a wide scope of my insight. Like I try and get as much knowledge as I can from key podiatrists or key chiros, that sort of thing. I don't try to stick to the one box of physiotherapy. And uh, so I have been doing a lot of uh, research and interviewing a lot of podiatrists as well. And it's really tough to come to one conclusion around the effects of orthotics. There's, um, I follow Ian Griffiths, who's a really world-renowned podiatrist, and he has a really um, overarching blanket statement with orthotics, which I really like and I, I use a lot myself. And he describes like orthotics work for some people some of the time, but never for everyone every time. And that's to show that Orthotics might work for you. Orthotics can be effective and can help people, but it won't help you every single time and it won't help everyone every time. And why orthotics do work, that's where the literature is really unclear. It's really tough to determine uh, why things are working. We do know that perhaps the psychosocial um, beliefs around it might be something to do with it. And we also know that there might be something to do with the kinetic forces. But when it comes to the literature, it's very, very puzzling, very confusing, very um, small sample sizes for a lot. But there's one other misconception that we do need to address. And that is if you do have a flatter foot, if you do have a slightly pronated foot, you don't necessarily need supportive shoes. You don't necessarily need orthotics. Uh, there is some evidence out there that will support that um, any foot type doesn't, like the, there's no correlation between the foot type that you do have and the need for a certain type of shoe. Yeah, and that pretty much sums up my assessment of the literature on this as well. Uh, it, it seems it's it's just one more example of these questions where, you know, oh, we, a person's got a flat foot, therefore we just developed this orthotic, which restores the arch, and that should be fine. And it, it just seems like one of these things that's so elementary and just makes so much sense. And yet when you actually study it in a controlled fashion, lo and behold, it, it doesn't pan out the way you expect. And and like you've said, uh, even though the studies studies have been small, uh, I was personally surprised that there doesn't seem to be much benefit. Uh, like you said, no matter what kind of foot type you have, um, the the thing that you mentioned though, uh, which I think is a really you know a, a useful statement by that podiatrist that you know these will work for some people some of the time. Uh, is there any inclination as to who those people are that are most likely to benefit, or is it really just a crapshoot? It is a crapshoot, yeah, which is uh, unfortunate because I'd like to um, like fit someone into a characteristic and say, yes, you are responsible, like you will benefit more from orthotics than someone else. Uh, unfortunately, it's not the case and that's probably why the, psychos, the psychosocial factors do play a role because if someone was to tell, if someone was to come into my clinic or see me online and say, um, 
should I wear orthotics? And I say, well, what do you think about orthotics? And they're like, oh, like it worked for my sister. My sister had foot pain for two years and she used orthotics and now she's pain-free, loving life, running, exercising, doing what she loves. I'll probably like, yeah, try it. Like um, see how you go because they've already got that ingrained belief that it will work and that's one of the um, the rationale of why things do work. And you, you mentioned before, things like marketing, it, it tends to make sense if you see that billboard of that foot collapsing in and they've got that dotted line along the Achilles and you can see that bowing of the Achilles and then that side-by-side comparison of having that orthotic under their foot and everything magically aligns and that dotted line, that Achilles is all in a straight line and you're being told when you purchase this orthotic that it's going to align, it's going to correct posture, it's going to activate things equally it's going to do all this sort of thing and then they slipped it into their shoe where are their beliefs going to go they're going to be like this is going to be magical this is going to help me in so many different ways it's going to help my hips my knees my back and um this is the ingrained belief that they do have and this is why a lot of times orthotics do work and when i have someone into my clinic i don't sell them these you know 350 dollars orthotics what i do is I, I, if they do have plantar fasciitis, I might start with tape. I might try and tape the foot to mimic an orthotic um, and then see if they respond quite well. Then if they do respond quite well, I might give them just a really cheap off-the-shelf orthotic. If that's working really well, then I'll say, okay, maybe we should try orthotics for a couple of days. But another thing I, I stress when I educate my runners is that orthotics are never – it's orthotics are the short-term answer for pain relief only. It's never the long-term solution that's going to be the rest of your life type of thing. Similar to if we have like an insertional Achilles injury, what we want to do is temporarily offload that tendon. And what we do is we put heel lifts or we educate them don't stretch that tendon because we're avoiding that pain range. And But what we want to do is once that recovers is slowly return them to normal function. So we take that heel lift out and we um, train the structures enough to tolerate not wearing the heels. Very, very similar to an orthotic. We want to temporarily put that orthotic in to settle down all the sensitivity and all the structures that are painful. Once that calms down, we need to build up the strength of that foot. We need to build up the function of the foot and slowly wean off that orthotic because the foot can become very reliant on that orthotic very quickly. And the moment we take it out, if everything's quite weak and everything's not used to supporting itself, that's when you can become heavily reliant on the orthotic and, yeah, be in danger for, like, long-term effects. Yeah, and I agree with everything you said. I think uh, one of the most important things you said in there was just uh, the notion that the placebo effect is incredibly powerful. I mean, we know that in medicine, and it doesn't surprise me at all for something like orthotics. If you believe it's going to work for you, then it probably will. Um, And I also... uh, I completely agree with the idea that rather than spending a lot of money on these custom orthotics, try out the much cheaper sort of generic ones. And if you like them, if they're giving you some advantage, then potentially at that point, invest in something a little more expensive and customized. Um, Looking at the other end of the spectrum, I'm curious uh, if you have any thoughts on uh, something that was a fad for a little while, uh, and that is barefoot running. Oh, yes. Um, I am... I'm a a personal advocate for not barefoot running, but like minimalist running or um, less support in the shoes. Uh, It would depend. Like at the very start of this interview, we mentioned like the acute 
changes in training, which is like a surefire way of getting injured. And that being like high mileage, like spikes in load, shoes can be a different, uh, shoes can be in that same realm. If you quickly fluctuate from a supportive shoe to a non-supportive shoe or vice versa, um, any in any direction that makes an acute change will increase your likelihood of injury. And let's just say, for an example, if we have a recreational runner who is used to uh, running in a traditional shoe or like a neutral shoe with just like your, your standard support on in the midsole and standard cushioning in the heel, and then they go from a, a, to a rapid minimalist shoe, which has less heel support, less uh, cushioning under the heel, less support when it comes to the arch of the foot, and you kind of feel it. it's a very light shoe. It's kind of flimsy. If you like wring it like a towel, it kind of just folds within itself. If you were to run with that, the demand of your calf, the demand of your Achilles, the demand of the foot muscles, the foot bones, that just dramatically spikes up and if you don't allow the body enough time to adapt, you will put yourself at risk of, heaven forbid, like stress fractures of the foot, which is very common for people who transition too quickly to barefoot running, um, Achilles issues, calf issues, uh, plantar fasciitis, all these sort of things. So you're, um, what you want to do if you think you want to head towards the minimalist or barefoot running style, then you should very, very slowly transition you need to strengthen up your foot. You need to strengthen up your calf and just allow that to happen. Um, when I transitioned myself to minimalist shoes, I was running maybe 20Ks, um, like kind of like a half marathon distance in traditional shoes. And then I went to minimalist shoes and I did a 4K run and I struggled for that 4Ks. My calves were burning. My calves were sore the next day. Thankfully, I didn't develop an injury, but just the contrast, just the difference is so massive but uh, I slowly adapted. I slowly built up the strength in my feet, in my calves, in my Achilles. And now 90, 85% of my weekly mileage is done in those minimalist shoes. Yes. And again, I think uh, we are in complete agreement. Uh, I believe that uh, barefoot running has its place. I think its uh, place is somewhat limited, but if you are going to try it, it, it has to be something you ease into and, and go very slowly at. I totally agree. Yeah. Um, I might add as well, if there's, the, it's totally fine for someone to keep a traditional shoe and just run in that um, all they want. Like they can have a very successful, very prolonged career just using the one shoe however if you want to swap between different shoes um, there are some really useful tips for that one it is um, addressing or like strengthening some of your weak links so like say foot strength might not be a, a strong link for a lot of people but if you slowly transition to a minimalist shoe or barefoot shoe then um, you're strengthening up those weak links as long as you're patient enough and as long as you're um as long as your the strategy and the program that you develop is structured enough to adapt. But you can also use it as a tool for if you develop certain injuries in the future. So like for me, for example, if I'm having a particularly um, uh, a tough week where my calves are a little bit tight or I'm starting to get a little bit of like plantar fasciitis or s something or other, I'll like I'll wear my traditional shoe because that offloads a lot of the structures that is accompanied by that but if i'm feeling quite good or the other day i had um, a bit of hamstring tightness sometimes i get a little bit of knee pain i'll 
mainly run in my minimalist shoes because they're quite light and they're easier on the hamstrings, they're easier on the, the knees. Um, so it's it's a good way to have these different tools in your toolkit um, if you are accustomed and you are adapted to different shoe types as well. Yeah. And, and, you know, just like triathlon is a great way to mitigate the likelihood of injury because you're doing three sports, you can mitigate the likelihood of injury of running if you are adaptable and able to move across different kinds of running in different great kinds example. of shoes, exactly the way you just described. Excellent I love advice. that. Yeah. I actually yeah. do a, a fair bit of um, recreational like triathlon races as well. And I just love triathlon training because I can, can, I can train every single day based on how I'm feeling and based on like, okay, my legs are so let me just go for a swim or like yeah if i'm having a particular injury arise i'll quickly just use the other two disciplines or um, fluctuate my training in so many creative ways that i can still continue moving forward fitness wise but um, still manage an injury or some really early signs that are that are arising so that's a, a brilliant example jeff yeah. Uh, so brody where can people find your uh, physiotherapy services online uh, so the mo- like I mainly direct people to my podcast to, f- to start with. So it's the Run Smarter podcast and they can learn and educate themselves as much as they want. If they do have any um, questions they want to reach out to me, uh, most people do so either on Instagram. So I've got the Run Smarter series as my handle or on Facebook, which is the Run Smarter podcast Facebook group. Uh, if they wanted to go straight to online physio i do have my website and it's breakthroughrunning.physio um but i tend to find a lot of the people just reach out on social media first have a few questions here and there and then they see if they are appropriate for online physio and then we can go down the correct channels um depending on their circumstances all right. Well, I will have all of the links that Brody mentioned in the show notes. And the show notes, of course, can be found on the Captivate webpage for the podcast, which is going to be mentioned at the end of the podcast today. Brody, thank you so much for joining me on the TriDoc podcast. This was a fascinating conversation. I really appreciated your time. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. And that's it for another episode of the TriDog Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. You can find archives of all of the shows as well as a handy collection feature where I have grouped the shows by category at the-tridoc-podcast.captivate.fm. You'll also find show notes with links to all of the things that we discussed on today's podcast at that same website. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like me to consider answering on a future episode? Well, send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit tridoccoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and about life sport coaching and the services that we provide. You can also follow me on the Tridoc Podcast Facebook page, Tridoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoy this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. You can also consider becoming a supporter on my Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. 
The TriDark Podcast will be back again soon with another interview with someone in the world of multi-sport and, of course, another medical question for me to answer. Until then, train hard, train healthy. Oh, 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 oh